Welcome, everyone, to this 66th episode of the Superhero Ethics Podcast. I'm Matthew. I'm one of your hosts. Hello, I'm Jacob. I'm also one of your hosts. And today we are going to be talking about, uh, well, we have been good. We have held off on talking about the Netflix MCU for a couple of episodes now. I actually don't think we've talked about it this year. We've is... renewed our contract for this year. That's why we're doing this episode <laughs> now. Which, which is pretty impressive because like, certainly there was a while when we talked about it a lot. And today we're actually going to be talking about why we've been talking about it a lot. Because um, there have been a couple of Netflix shows that have come out recently that we have had a lot of opinions on. Um, today we're going to be talking about Daredevil Season 3 and Iron Fist Season 2. Um, at a later point, uh, we think in April, we're going to record something on the most recent season of Punisher. And then we will be talking about the last Jessica Jones season when that comes out as well. But today, more than anything, we're going to be talking about um, a pretty sad thing that's happening in our universe. Um, but, but it gives us a good opportunity to dive in further, which is the fact that at this point now, uh, Netflix has announced that no more of the Netflix MCU is going to happen. They're, they've canceled all of the shows. Um, there are 8 million theories and conspiracy theories about why this happened in terms of Disney or Netflix or Marvel and how that's all going to go forward. And we have a lot of thoughts on that, clearly, but we're mostly going to stay away from that today. Instead, what we really want to do is say, listen, for five years, uh, it started in uh, 2015, so four and a half years, Netflix has been producing these incredible TV shows that I think, and I think we both think, have really revolutionized the way comic book stories can be told, especially on television, but really on any media. Um, and, and, and using that to talk about, you know, why is it that we keep going back to the Netflix well? Because at the end of the day, I don't think it's because, like, you know, we only have Netflix subscriptions and never want to go to the movies. Like, we certainly watch other things and we talk about other things. But to me, more than anything else, Netflix is a show that explores the... Netflix, Netflix MCU shows explore the kind of questions that I love so much and that I think, Jacob, you love so much. And that really are what created the need for, the desire for this podcast. So I'm really excited to dive into both those shows initially and then talk about the, the MCU on Netflix kind of as a whole. Um, wh where are you coming from? Well, when, so when Daredevil first uh, was on Netflix, so I'm, I'm a weirdo by modern terms. Uh, when a show comes on Netflix, I watch like one episode a day at best. Yep. And sometimes not even at that rate. That is not normal as I understand it. But I remember when Daredevil came on and I sat down and watched the first episode, it was something where I was like, I could not, like it was something I was looking forward to the next evening if I was going to watch another episode of Daredevil. Uh, it was like I was very excited because it was digging into the the world in a way that none of the movies, none of the other pieces of the franchise were doing. Right. Yeah. The thing like and we're, we're going to talk about it, but like it just did this. It did this great thing where it like put real people in these situations mm -hmm. as opposed to these sort of like always larger than life characters like your Tony Starks, your Thors, um, and, and sort of showed you the, the street level view of what it was like living in the Marvel universe. Yeah. It, it's that street level part that first grabbed me. And like I said, well, we'll get more into this. We'll go into the individual shows, but just while we're kind of summarizing, I'm, um, I'm, I'm very much the opposite. I am a, you know, I binge like crazy and I love binging and I, and I will talk about this more. I, I think Netflix shows are particularly well made for binging. Um, but, but one of the things that first grabbed me was that in that first Daredevil show, we learn almost immediately that one of the major plot points is going to be the construction contracts for rebuilding New York after the first Avengers movie. And like you said, it's that man on the street. It's the street level thing of 
in the movies, you know, when you see Superman and Batman destroying huge buildings, when you see, you know, Hulk tearing up pieces of the sidewalk and of the street and the pavement and throwing them at people, the movies almost never go into, like, but okay, what happens next, you know? Uh, Batman vs. Superman did a little bit in terms of talking about, like, the, the human cost, but still, we don't get to see, like, who's paying the construction bill? Who, what's the insurance like? And the fact that Daredevil started with those questions, it just blew my mind, and it made me so excited for the MCU, and really kind of sad that we're lo losing the M uh, Netflix MCU. Um, but so let's talk about the two of the most recent ones that we had. Let's first start with Daredevil Season 3, um, and I... On some level, I'm sad that we're giving it kind of short shrift of only giving it like 10 minutes or so instead of a whole episode onto its own. But I think there's just so much going on right now that we want to talk about. Um, but so let's kind of quickly, what, what was your overall take on Daredevil Season 3? So, and I actually sent you a message about this while I was watching it. So my hot take about midway through the season was I am really interested in continuing to watch this show uh, about this villain called Matt Murdock slash Daredevil, <laughs> uh, who is, you know, like, this is sort of his origin story, apparently, I guess. Like, I was being a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but um, it sort of, it it didn't completely turn uh, the dynamic on its head, right? Kingpin is still uh, a bad man, right? Uh, but I feel like this is the season where Daredevil most struggled with his own sense of morality, um, yeah. And in a lot of ways, I felt like it was the best season, but I don't think it's actually better than the first season of Daredevil. It just had, I, I liked the, I guess I liked the meta theme of it. Um, yeah. And I, and I really enjoyed both Kingpin's arc um, because he's back and his arc is, is interesting uh, because he's um, an actual complex character. Um, and I enjoyed, uh, at the end, I ended up enjoying Matt Murdock's arc, uh, but I spent about half the season or more being very upset with him, uh, yeah. which means I'm emotionally invested, right? Like if, <laughs> if, no, it's definitely true. And I, it's funny. I, I did not like, I liked the first couple of episodes of season two, Daredevil season two overall was the first time I'd been disappointed by a Netflix show. And it, it started kind of a bad run for a few seasons, which was kind of hard. Um, but to me, this utterly put, um, I mean, there've been a, a number of great Netflix shows since, since then and before this one, but this I think is absolutely just as good as Daredevil season one. I think in some ways it's hard for me to compare the two because in many ways, this one feels like a continuation of season one, because, you know, one of the major issues of season one is him saying, I am afraid of the part of myself that just flat out likes hurting bad people. I am afraid of what happens if I give in too much to that. And and to me, I think what you're talking about in terms of him kind of going villainish is him really look, it's him taking that question from season one. And now we're getting to see what happens if that fear comes true. Because I think like if, if, if Matt Murdock in season one could see what he might do in season three, Matt Murdock would go, yeah, that's exactly what I'm afraid of. Mm-hmm. Right, and so uh, one of the one of the things that I think this did very well uh, was that it it's sort of it's playing to and this is kind of a trope, right? It's playing to this idea that in order to 
you know, be able to deal with the the devil that you become, right? When you when you embrace your darkest instincts, you do have to do that, right? You have to tap into it and experience that person, so you know how to how to not be that person. Um, yeah. And I feel like in a lot of ways, uh, that was what his arc, what what Murdoch's arc was trying to accomplish here. It, it, not 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 all of it, right? Because he's also still struggling with the like, should I ever kill? And God, that's an interesting little thing uh, at the mm-hmm. end of the season because he's 100% willing to do it and stays his hand anyway. Um, yeah. But like, I feel like it's actually separate from the, the point that you're making about uh, him embracing the pleasure is not really the word, but like the, the sense of purpose that inflicting yeah. violence on, quote, bad people gives him. Right. And like, because that, Mm -hmm. that allows him to enjoy the experience, you know, that feels inherently wrong to him, at least at the start. But in season three, it feels like he's not actually embracing that. Yeah. And I, and I, and to be clear, it's not that I think that, um, I think he's like a sadist, like he gets some visceral pleasure. It's that, and I think we've talked about this before, but I think this is a great example of it. When we see terrible things happening in the world, it's very easy to feel powerless and to feel impotent and to feel like there's nothing we can do. And that's a horrible feeling. And, you know, I remember when the whole discussion about punching Nazis was happening, that was one of the things that was talked about is like how viscerally good it must feel to be able to like literally have that person in front of you and throw the punch and connect and hurt a Nazi. And I get that because I think even on the internet, we see this sometimes like, you know, when, you know, you're feeling powerless, you're feeling like no one can stop Fox News, no one can stop Breitbart and all the lies. And so just feeling like you have absolutely, you know, tweet dunked on some idiot from the other side. It's a great visceral feeling. Um, again, not in a kind of like sadistic take joy from their 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 suffering, but like I'm not powerless. I got to do something. And I think in all those cases, I think that can be a good thing and it can be a really bad thing, especially I think it's one of the, the things that really destroys online communication a lot of the time. Um, and I think that's kind of the same same place where I think we're talking about Daredevil's coming from. Is it's 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 not a, a like you know he gets off on it. It's he doesn't have to feel powerless. Um, and and I think one of the things that I, I haven't even made this connection until we started talking, but in another episode recently we were talking about sort of what makes it okay for for um, you know heroes to make these kind of decisions or not, both in terms of anger, but also in terms of like the lines between vengeance and justice. And one thing we came to a lot is accountability. That, you know, one of at least my fears is the hero who is accountable to no one but his own conscience because no one else is ever saying, hey, Murdoch, you're going a little bit over the deep end. And I think in some extent, that's what we see here is that in season one, he is still accountable to Karen and to his priest and to Foggy. And in season three, especially when he kind of like breaks away from wanting anything to do with anyone in the church and he's cut all ties with with. Um, Jessica and with um, uh, not with Jessica with, uh, with Karen <laughs> Jessica because the actress was Jessica in um, True Blood correct uh, another fantastic role Jessica mm-hmm. um, anyway sorry exactly such a wonderful bad show um, <laughs> but the point being he he's not accountable to anyone in season 3 there's no one sort of holding his shoulders saying wait a minute are you sure you're doing this for the right reasons and I think that's a big part of why he goes so deep into that darkness yeah, you did leave one very important entity out of the people that Matt Murdock was holding himself accountable to, 
but I feel like maybe you did it on purpose. I thought you'd mentioned it earlier, but uh, it... I, I I did, and I will say that that's um, and I think you mean God. Yeah. Um, and, 100%. and again, it's God as as it is understood in the show as a as a part of Matt Murdock's experience. You it's know it's think? important to Matt Murdock, right? right? Whether or not whether or not such such an entity exists is important to Matt Murdock, and it was something. God was one of the entities that Daredevil was using to hold himself accountable and was right. constantly questioning what he was doing. And and it's, I will say, uh, for me, as a religious person, as a person who's wrestled with those kind of questions, and as a person for whom the book of Job is my favorite book of the Bible, the one he expressly quotes, that's another reason why, I don't know if this was the best Daredevil season, but it is hands down my favorite. Mm. Because one of the things that I really believe is that, you know, a religious belief in whatever religion it is can give your life meaning, can give your life grounding, but that one of the dangers when you base your faith on this very rigid understanding of God wants me to do this, God doesn't want me to do that, is that whenever reality breaks in and you see things happening in the world that don't match your experience of what God's world should be, that faith can prove to be very brittle and it can break. And and it's, I think that the crisis of faith that Matt Murdock has, um, you know, obviously not for the same kind of reasons, but it's a crisis of faith that I certainly have had. And that um, when I was a pastor and was doing religious counseling that a lot of the people I talked to have had of, you know, what does it really mean when you've been told all your life that if you do the right thing, that if you love God, if you love God's children, that, that God will be good to you. And, and, and what, what does it mean when now that, that proves wrong? You know, when, when, or not even that the theology proves wrong, but just when, from your perspective, you're looking at your life and everything seems to be broken. Um, and I, I loved the way that the show was willing to explore that, especially because the show wasn't trying to give us easy answers. The show didn't just sort of by the end give us a sort of like, he learns to be an atheist, or there's some like kind of supernatural thing that totally restores his faith in God. You know, he's, he's wrestling with the questions just as much at the end of the show I think he's just kind of more found peace with wrestling with the questions instead of needing to know the answers. Yeah. And I guess like, I guess for me, that particular part of the arc didn't hit home quite the same way. Mm -hmm. I appreciated it, but for me, I just ended up being frustrated with uh, Matt Murdock not being able to recognize that he had a perfectly good moral center and he was just choosing to ignore it. Uh, yeah. So, I, and I can see why it would totally lose, you know, lose a lot of people. I think for me, it's the same. Like, I'm not a martial arts guy in the slightest, and so I know there's whole discussions about like the martial arts in Iron Fist and stuff like that that I'll never be able to appreciate the same way. And I'm sure, in some ways, that really just plot line is the same kind of thing in reverse. Um, you know, but I, but as you read, as you said, I think at the core of it, what it also comes down to is an exploration of his moral center and, and where does he build that from, which I right. think has, has a much larger audience of people who are interested and, in. And this is why it was so important that so many of his navel-gazing scenes take place in the basement of that church, right? Yeah. Take place with who we learn later to be his literal, actual mother, right? Yeah. But, which, that was a that was a good plot twist. That was a... Uh... <laughs> I definitely like that a lot, especially because also I thought her... Her situation, I thought, was also another interesting parallel because that's one of the other sort of, you know, common trope of a hard decision that we often see people do is what do you do when you've got this larger 
obligation to a more, defu- you know, a, a more intangible community versus a specific obligation to your literal child. Right. And I think most of the time our characters, especially if they're women, um, and, and often in kind of like more problematic ways that's assumed if it's women, but almost always what the character does is to say, well, of course my child has to come first. I'm going to give up on this larger community. And I loved having a character who did the opposite and for whom, obviously I think Matt Murdock was very angry at her for doing that in a lot of ways. But I don't think the writers necessarily were telling us that they, that she was wrong for doing it, that that maybe she could have talked about it more or, been, or approached it in different ways. But I think the show was pretty clearly trying to say, like, you know, that, that this was a very hard decision she had to make and that there isn't really a, sp- a specific judgment of what the writers think would have been the right decision for her to make. I think that's a very, uh, and this is not meant as a criticism, I think that's a very rose-colored glasses look at the situation. Uh, mm-hmm. I read the narrative as postpartum, uh, mm-hmm. and that's why she like she had to nope out, basically. Right. Um, and so, like, I agree that it is still you can still read it in in an empowering way, but I didn't I didn't think that those scenes were trying to portray that that character was struggling. Although it does create a very good parallel. Now, I th- I like your version of events better because right. here they're both struggling with their vision of what their role is supposed to be in the larger sense with their duties to the the individuals that they know right. and care about right um and matt murdoch has spent most of the season making oh i didn't even thought of that parallel but you're so right yeah matt murdoch spends most of the season making the wrong decision to ignore the people he cares about uh because you know reasons i guess like i i right. again really mad at him for most of this season um because like he just like straight up withholds information and robs his best friend like come on he's a, yeah. like clearly clearly off the deep end uh but he recenters himself when he reestablishes those connections and one of those connections is uh repairing his relation or trying to repair some of his relationship with his mother um after like spending a little bit too much time being childish and petulant, in my opinion, and blaming her, like, come on, you're fucking forty years old at this point, like, come on. I mean, I mean, I'm forty two, and I still have a lot of sympathy for him in that situation. But I'm not I, saying I, I don't. Just get yeah. over it. Be an adult. <laughs> I, I I do think you're right. Like, I I haven't seen the show since it come, came out, so my memory's a little foggy, and I think I, yeah, I had foggy. forgotten that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, I had forgotten that there was some of that. Um. The way it plays out, I think you're right. It is clearly supposed to be postpartum. But I think that the implication is supposed to be that in the postpartum depression, part of what she's wrestling with is missing what she felt as a nun and in that community versus the struggle she's having now. And, and I did wish the show addressed this a little more, um, the relationship between her and Mr. Murdoch, you know, Matt's father, is a much older guy. And she's in a situation where she's pretty vulnerable. Like, we don't Mm -hmm. need to go too far into that, but I... That didn't occur to me as the healthiest of situations by any means, which again, like, you know, it's, it, 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 to me, this isn't the sound of music kind of situation where the nun has found true love. Right. Like, there was a lot of brokenness on all sides of the situation. And at the end of the day, I guess I just mean, I think it is fairly revolutionary that a show like this would portray the mother deciding to do what she does and not make that out to be just this monstrous thing. Like, clearly Matt Murdock thought it was monstrous. But I don't think the show did, which I think is fairly unique for a decision like that. Yeah. 
And um, we, we could go, all, we could do a full episode on this show. And I think we both kind of want to, but I know we want to go to some other things. So let's just wrap up quickly with, um, was there anything else that you found kind of problematic about this season? Uh, well, we, uh, I don't think we've touched on Poindexter. That's going to be a very long discussion. Um, yeah. Suffice to say, while uh, the portrayal of, uh, I think it is one of the more, one of the more intentional portrayals of sociopathy if if you understand my meaning when i say intentional um where he has to like i I actually kind of liked that they went into um him having to sort of program himself to code the right kinds of social behaviors and whatnot um and i also liked kingpin's ability to identify him like basically mark him and know how to, the buttons to push to manipulate him to to yeah. but like it was still you know at the end of the day you still have somebody who's uh, suffers from a mental illness being painted as uh you know twisted up and a bad guy and yeah right. so his his character was frightening in many ways for that reason but at the same time it's like i'm not sure it was the best decision yeah I, I was very torn by it, especially as, I, as I've been open about. I'm someone who is a, a mental illness, um, a, a person with, with, with severe mental illness in some ways. And, and, and I have the same technical diagnosis of some of the things that, uh, that uh, Poindexter has, although obviously my life has gone in a very different direction. Um, and I was, I was very torn because the one hand, the betrayal of the therapy and the way the therapist who he worked with tries to work with him. I thought, and I've actually spoken to some people in the therapy community, was very accurate in some ways and very well done. Um, I think part of my frustration is to show a character who has this mental illness, who does have such a good therapy experience in mm-hmm. some ways, and still goes completely off the deep end. Um, and it, it just, you know, absolutely, there are people who have severe mental illness and wind up doing terrible things. In a smaller instance of cases, there are people who have mental illness and wind up doing terrible things, in part because of their mental illness. But there is a much larger amount of people who have mental illness, including some very, very severe ones, who never harm anybody in the kind of ways that a Poindexter does. Um, just as there are, and, and that, you know, just as there are just as many people who do not have these kind of mental illnesses and still do terrible, horrible things. Um, and in some ways, I feel like it's kind of like you know, I was talking to a, a friend of mine about the whole concept of fridging. You know, this idea of um, a, a female character who really only exists to die in some tragic way as a plot point to a male character. And I was hearing the discussion, and at one point, another person asked, well, like, is there any way to actually do that in a good way? To have, like, a, you know, a, a well... To, 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 because the person was arguing, like, can it sometimes actually be a thing that one character dies who happens to be female and it influences a male character in an important story way? And the argument my friend made was, sure, at some point in time, that story could be told and should be told more often. But right now, because that's so often the only way that women appear in these stories, and that story happens all the time, could we just get a pause on that story for a while? And that's kind of how I feel about this. Of Yes, there is some great storytelling to be done about the way that of some villains who happen to have very bad mental illnesses and the way that that can be played out. But we get that story so often. We get it in Punisher in some terrible ways that we'll talk about, I'm sure, in a couple of weeks. We get it in so many superhero movies and TV shows. That, but I think, yeah, at the end of the day, I was kind of like, there's some interesting storytelling to be done with Poindexter. 
but it just felt like a mistake to once more have your your main sort of physical antagonist be the guy who's mentally ill, and so that's why he's so fucked up. I think the mistake they made here, and it's it's a similar parallel to uh, to what happens and, and why fridging is such a problem when it happens, but I think the mistake they made is that there was never... The, the narrative never painted Poindexter in a sympathetic light, right? This wasn't a tragedy uh, that we, or at least we weren't being sold this whole situation as a tragedy, but as something scary, right? And I mm. think that is very important that what should have happened, I feel the way the story should be written, is like every character starts out sympathetic, right? And then you, you sort of can move it. Like you can still have a villain origin story from there, right? You can still make bullseye from there. Um, but if we, if the entire time we're just, you know, getting terrified, like, and they had an angle, right? There's this whole thing where he's trying to connect to somebody that he worked with. Um, uh, and you know, like, there's this whole stalker angle and whatnot, but it's because he's like, he, he's adopted her as an anchor or whatever. It's like this whole thing. Um, there was a way to paint that I feel in a in a way that makes the audience, you know, sad that he turned villain, but like sad, right? Evokes a reaction other than fear and and disgust or contempt. Um, but they didn't do that, right? And the, well, the reason why, you... oh, sorry, yeah. just just wanted to finish my thought because yeah. I I talked about fridging briefly and I wanted to circle back. The reason why I connect that with with one of the major problems with fridging is that often when when we have one of these women characters die uh we have not been given the time to to be able to visualize that person as a fully realized entity in the narrative and so they come across to us as a, a caricature uh and then you know basically it's the same thing as they're an object to, they're an instrument to use to motivate the hero or in this case an instrument to use as an antagonist for a hero rather than a person and that's yeah. the problem um, and I, I, I mostly agree with, I, I agree with your larger point. Um, I, what I was going to break in and say is I actually did feel very sympathetic to the point Dexter. Mm, um, okay. and I think you're right. That, uh, but, but I do think like the moment where I most rolled my eyes, I was like, come on, was when he started to focus on using that other person as an anchor. Because I do think that like having been through some of that therapy myself and, and reading a lot about it and talking to others who have been often one of the first things that therapy will really try to drill into you is how to establish the boundaries of who you should or should not, you know, make an anchor out of mm -hmm. in that kind of a way. Um, and so that was a real moment where I was like, come on, this is, this does not make sense. Um, but I do think you're right to the larger point. And um, yeah, it, 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 it point X remains a kind of fascinating character to me, but really one where I wish the show had approached a little differently. I think it was um, a well, I think it was a well-built character just needed a little bit of a different story angle uh, because yeah. somebody, somebody like me who doesn't have, uh, a similar experience should still be able to feel sympathetic toward that character. I wasn't at any point yeah. really feeling like, Oh man, uh, actually that's not true. You know what? That's not true. Thinking back on it, uh, when he'd had this good life set up and it was falling apart on him, I felt sympathetic for him then. Yeah. I was all like, you know, that really sucks for him. And it's because of Kingpin. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I will say that it did a, a great job of portraying because I, you know, not not with a therapist dying, but I certainly had the experience of building a very. Uh, and what actually did this is one actually a friend of mine was complaining to me about earlier today. You know, when you build a very good relationship with a therapist, and then you know, insurance makes you switch or something else like that. And mm. just, I, I do like that the show at least highlighted 
how important that particular relationship is and why it can be so devastating when your therapist dies or moves away or something like that. Um, let's, let's talk to, um, I don't think we have as much to say about it because it was better than the first, but I don't think it caught us quite as much as Daredevil 3. But let's quickly talk about um, Iron Fist Season 2. Um, what was your take on this one? Hands down the best season of Netflix Iron Fist. Uh, yes, 100%. 100%. <laughs> um, so, um, one of the things it did very well was it had more characters that had bigger story po- positions, uh, yeah. bigger arcs uh, that were not Danny Rand, and it kind of fixed some of the problems that, that we had with Danny Rand. Where, like, it, in some ways, in a, in a very, like, ham-fisted way, where they, like, specifically made him cut himself out of his own privilege, right? Reason like I'm not doing anything to do with with the company. I'm gonna be, you know, you know, he's like they show him in like I think the first episode and working hauling boxes out of a the back of a truck or whatever to try to reconnect uh-huh. and recenter himself. And it's like, yeah, all right. Um, and you know, he's very, like when he reacts with uh, typhoid or when he interacts with typhoid Mary for the first time, it's charming as hell. So like, where yeah. was this Danny Rand all of season one? Um, and so, in a lot of ways, they, they I felt like they corrected for some of the issues that people had with Danny Rand specifically and Iron Fist in general in Season 2. Um, I also feel like it had a stronger story. Um, mm-hmm. There, we've, we've gone at length, especially on our Defenders episode, about the portrayal of the Hand and how that payoff didn't really pay off in, in a good way. Like, it wasn't... It felt sort of unrealized like they had so much talent and it felt like they didn't utilize it appropriately yeah whereas here the the davos uh, angle first of all it's a more personal connection um Mm -hmm. and secondly it involves more people right davos and joy have an angle uh with each other um joy is connected to danny in a completely different way from davos uh, Ward is in the mix because Ward's trying to repair his relationship with Joy, and Joy is no selling him at every turn. Right? right? There's a much better there's a much better story dynamic uh, where it's not just Danny and all of the influences around him. Um, and and like D- Colleen, I think was the uh, other major developed character in season one. We got we got some of the Meachams, right? We got some parts of the yeah. Meachams, but they were but but they felt much more like stock characters and yes. actually well developed. Yes, whereas both Joy and Ward in this season, I felt were just uh, Ward going to uh, um, Narcotics Anonymous. I think it is he's going yeah. to uh, that whole plot angle. Like there was a lot more. It spread itself out more among its characters, which was to its credit because it humanized a lot more of the people and. That's a point that we've made uh, going back a ways. It's a lot easier to just dismiss people, dismiss characters, uh, when efforts aren't made to make them people, right? And it it ties with this, like, Davos, even though Davos was the main antagonist, um, like, I felt a lot more uh, like, you know, maybe Davos had some, like, real grievances that needed to be addressed, and I unfortunately think Danny and Davos did not resolve their grievances in the best <laughs> way, uh, yeah. because they, yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't also agree with you there. I think I, um, I rolled my eyes a lot at Danny, like, trying to give up all of his money and do other things, because to me, like, when I see a character who has that much money and doesn't isn't aware of it, I don't want to see them give it all up. I want to see them go Batman and like use their money for better purposes. Although, although actually, as someone pointed out, uh, if Batman wanted to save the city, 
he could take all the money he spends on crazy gadgets and use them on like programs for the poor. Um, but but in the same kind of way, like I sort of feel like Danny Rand giving up all of his money to go load. It it, it just felt very like I'm gonna be the rich white person who goes to build wells in Ghana kind of a thing. Right. Um. But 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 putting that aside, I think I I, I agree with a lot of that, and I. To me, I think the thing I liked most about the show is that it was about the Iron Fist mm-hmm. and about the fact that Danny Rand happened to be the Iron Fist. Right. But this show wasn't about Danny Rand the way, like, Jessica Jones is about Jessica Jones, you know? It was, I think... And, and it makes sense because of all four of them, the Iron... Like, there's never been a Daredevil before or after Matt Murdock. There's never been a Power Man or, a, um, you know, what Jessica Jones does. Th- those heroes are all the same. Danny Rand is one of a whole long line of many Iron Fists who've gone before and after. And I feel like this show made a realization of that people were interested in a show about the Iron Fist. They were not as interested in a show about Danny Rand. And being willing to make that pivot and make the show be about um, the Iron Fist more, especially with the ending of ending up with Danny recognizing that someone else should be the Iron Fist. Um, I was really impressed by that. And I was like, okay, this is a, this is a really interesting direction to take the show. In part because on a kind of meta level, I feel like it's a really nice recognition by the um, by the writers of, like, we're hearing the critique and we're understanding it. We want to take things in a new direction. But also just, like, yeah, to see the Iron Fist go from a white man to a woman of color, um, I thought that was a really powerful moment. Also, um, well, first of all, uh, the, uh, the martial arts character being Colleen Wing, in this case, moving forward as the Iron Fist is better in in a lot of ways uh but uh one thing i wanted to point out um on the you know giving up his money living without his riches thing um that is the first time in the season that he proves that he's very willing to surrender whatever power he has and i feel like when he's willing to when he like snap is willing to surrender the iron fist when that'll solve the problem i feel like that is a consistent character point and it is something that makes him a much more likable character, which means he can't ever be the Iron Fist. Yeah, I, I, I think that makes you a lot of sense. I, I do agree there that, like, I might disagree with him giving up the money, but agree with him giving up the the Iron Fist. But you're right that the one sets up the other. And uh, it's, and it's well. both giving up power, right? Yeah. Both giving up power and control over the environment around him because he sees it as not the best way, right? Yeah. Uh, whereas he's not, he's not the right person for it right he wasn't he's not suited to be a corporate suit in charge of a major biotech company right and he's not suited to be the iron fist at the end of the day um which is something like so here again the villain has a point davos is right danny shouldn't have been the iron fist i'm not i'm not saying davos should have been the iron fist i think neither of them should have been the iron fist and i think uh davos's father recognized that and thought danny was the lesser of two evils but I, I definitely had some feeling about that. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, in season one, I, I spent most of season one going, why isn't Davos the Iron Fist? I don't get it. Um, but where he goes, you make makes clear. I will say, and this is the one thing I'm, there's a number of things. I, I, I thought the season was okay. I think it was still one of the weaker of the um, Marvel Netflix shows. But certainly, like I said, I think it's better than um, Daredevil season two. I think it's better than um, uh, the Defenders, which I think is really unfortunate because the Defenders could have been so much better. Um, to me, though, the thing that I think I actively didn't like most, and granted, it's just 20 seconds at the end, but is Danny still being some kind, the Iron Gun, or whatever the hell that is. Um, 
in part just because I hate guns so much and the whole idea of there being this mysticism of guns. And yes, I know that's not the Netflix writers. I know that's a part of the um, uh, the comic book. But I just, A, because of my hatred of guns and that whole plot line, but also because it still seemed to say, yes, Danny Rand gave up the power of the Iron Fist, but he still has some kind of iron sacred power, which to me, it undercut a little bit what it was he'd given up. You know, because it, it I would really love to see Granted, we're not going to get any season of it, but but a show that was about Colleen Wing being the Iron Fist, while a now totally mortal, still very good martial artist, even if the actor isn't, but still a very good martial artist, but 100% non-supernatural Danny Rand is trying to also do good in the world in his own way. Yeah, so the thing is that they, the writers set up that they were going to be introducing the Immortal Weapons plotline in the early parts of the season. So that part wasn't a surprise. Um, Orson Randall is who's supposed to be, uh, the person who's, who's an iron fist who then was able to, to, uh, bring his power into guns using techniques made by the pirate queen, who is apparently an ancestor of Colleen Wing, uh, which is, that was the whole setup. And so I was like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, and, uh, on, interestingly, I, and I forget if they mentioned this or not, but that pirate queen herself was an iron fist. So Colleen actually has like a, a, a right of succession thing going on as well in the story, which is really cool. Um, but the only thing I disliked, the only thing I disliked about the gun foo thing. And I also am not a super big fan of, of guns as a, as a tool in this sense, um, is that it is specifically Danny Rand who gets them. I think it would have been better if they just found the person with them. Right. Uh, because, and the other thing is that it's, it's using the power of the, the chi power of the iron fist is what lets you do the gun magic. And if Danny gave that up, how can he do the gun magic? It's Yeah. I'm glad yeah, I mean, the show like, is done. Like <laughs> Exactly. And like we'll we'll get into a second what we want to want to see going forward, but I certainly feel like whatever whatever happens with these characters, and I certainly hope that more happens, I, I don't want Danny Rand to be one of right. the main stars. And it does um, like get, getting back to, to the ethical point, uh just to just sort of close the thought on that. Um it cheapens the very sacrifice that I was praising him for. Yeah. Right? Exactly. He, if he gives up his power, good. Give up your power. If you just find another tool, another supernatural tool to to then have agency uh, again in in the fighting world, then you didn't actually you didn't actually make a sacrifice. It, it's really frustrating. Um, it it cheapens the moment and it cheapens the story. And it, it's funny. That's maybe a good transition into what we liked. So talking about the Netflix MCU itself um, for a while. One of the things. So when I first started watching Daredevil, I think this is how the time works out. I think it was fairly soon after I had watched the the first Avengers movie. A movie which I loved 95% of. And I still think is a very good movie. But I will often turn it off before the last couple of minutes. Because for me, that movie becomes so much worse when Tony Stark survives. Um, and yes, Tony Stark continues to be a great character and one of my favorite characters. And they've done great things with him. And some levels I don't regret that we still have him in the universe, but it was a reminder of like because the whole emotional crux of that scene is Tony having to accept that he is going to die. And when it turns out he doesn't die, it feels like it undercuts all of that for me. And and where I'm going for that is so and I had to remember, like, right, that's what comic book movies are. No matter how much you like them, there still aren't gonna be the actual real stakes that you think they're supposed to be. 
And so I think in part, that's what made me so much like the the MCU on Netflix is I was like, oh, wait a minute. Here stakes actually matter. Here when bad stuff happens, bad stuff happens, and we don't just get to fix it in the next scene. Um, when characters so, die, they stay dead. Uh, right. Like the um, uh, Karen's mentor, um, Ben? Oh, yeah, the reporter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, with, the, with the noted exception of Matt Murdock at the end of Defenders, which, again, <sighs> I'm very glad we got a third season from I mean, him. I was so pissed at that at the end of Defenders, but... Moving on, um, let, let's get into just start from, you know, what, what, why do you think we love the, the Netflix MCU so much? What, what was so special about this collection of TV shows? Well, I think one thing that it really benefited from is the Netflix format allows for the telling of such radically different stories because you can presume that you can you can presume your audience is picking up where they left off. Right. You can presume binge watching, uh, which means that all of the shyness about continuity goes away. Now, again, I watch, you know, day to day, um, but I've always been a huge fan of, of shows with a lot of really rich continuity. It's why I love Babylon five so much um, because mm -hmm. especially like season three is literally each episode feeds into the next. Like it's so tight and so much like building a story over the long term. Uh, and so Every single Netflix show did that because they they knew that a large portion of their audience, at least, was going to be watching a bunch of the episodes consecutively. And so they didn't have to worry about, well, are they going to remember this moment that we're paying off in episode four uh, from episode two? Well, yeah, they are because they just watched it two hours ago. Like, it's basically yeah. a movie for them at this point. Um, and not only will they remember that, but they'll remember things from other seasons. Yes. You know? Like, like I said, the fact that defend, like, I think you could have watched Daredevil season one, never having seen the Avengers movie and still get it and still enjoy it. But so much of the plot makes so much more sense if you've seen the Avengers movie, yep. you know, um, and then, you know, then you get characters like Turk who just keep appearing again and again and again. And you have, you know, you know the effects of one story are, are bleeding into the effects of the other. And Claire, um, a recurring character in multiples of the stories, uh, sort yeah. of tying some characters together. It's, it's very good. In, in a weird way, and this is going to be a, a, an odd connection, because the darkness versus the lightness of the two things in that dimension are, could not be more different. But it kind of reminds me of Discworld. In a way that, like, Discworld... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see it, right? Di Discworld, yeah. the, the Discworld books by Terry Pratchett, which are fantastic and are... They're not even light. I mean, there's some darkness to them, but they're very much satire. They're very much light-hearted. But part of the idea of it, is, and the entire thing is 100% satire of so many things, but it's all set in this one world that is completely overlapping, and so many of the novels happen on different sides of the world from the others, but there's still little Easter eggs that make the whole world feel like one continuous thing. Um, and I just, and granted in some of the later seasons, I started to get frustrated with the, with the way that they weren't building some of those connections and, you know, times when it was just like, why isn't one hero calling the other? Uh, and you understand why for production values, they weren't, but for like, in terms of the continuity of the series, it didn't make sense. But overall, I think it has done so much more than anything else to get said to, to build that entirely interlocking, interlocking universe in an amazing way. It, and it also built it because it could do this. It could slowly build characters over time. It built these rich, complex characters. I mean, yeah. look like everyone from Trish from the Jessica Jones series, uh, who, you know, 
when when we first see her seems like she's one note but they were able to tell a story over time to give us a lot more complexity in that character to matt murdoch possibly one of the most like kingpin a very complex yeah. character right we have so many of the the named individuals up and to and including characters that don't even show up in in uh many of the episodes like there's a richness there's a depth to them because they're able to build slowly over time uh and because they're able to do that they're also able to present challenging questions where we start a season with a character with a particular perspective and by the end of the season they've they've made a realization and we were along with them for the journey rather being a startling moment right the startling the starting realization that you've been doing something wrong is very common in superhero media and in movies, you get it sort of as a really quick moment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because it has to it has to follow your your act structure, right? And so, like one of the later acts has to be, you know, the lowest point where the character gets that realization, where you know, oh, everything I've been doing is wrong. I've been working for the bad guys the whole time, or I've been, I've been going after the wrong people, or I have been a jerk to my friends, right? Um, but here, uh, and this is again to Daredevil season three's credit. Uh, we're able to see that build very slowly, and so that w- in the end, when we have Matt Murdock, Foggy, and Karen Page sitting down uh, to discuss making Nelson and Murdock and Page, right? right? Um, it's completely paid off when Matt's all like, "I've been a jerk and idiot, basically." But like, yeah, yeah, I 100 percent agree. I think what you're getting at is, is what I what I put as my number one reason why. Netflix MCU is at this point hands down my favorite version of superhero stories. Like I think um, there are a couple of movies. Like I think Logan is probably my favorite movie of all time of the superhero genre. But and but it's for the same reasons. Is that um, in the Netflix MCU, I feel like unlike every other MCU thing, most of the other stories we get, there are characters who are heroes or villains. There are characters who are protagonists or antagonists. But I don't think there are good guys and bad guys. You know, that that kind of simplistic, like, here's the good guy, they get to do things and you don't really morally question them as much unless they decide to morally question them. Here are the bad guys. You might get a sympathetic backstory, but still they're clearly the bad guys. Nothing in Mar- in Marvel and Netflix does that. Um, you know, and, and again, starting from Daredevil, the fact that, like, Matt Murdock is our hero, but kind of just barely because he is so morally conflicted and we are so morally conflicted about him. Kingpin is our villain. But again, kind of just barely, because you can see he does have a point in many ways. And there's many things that you understand why he's trying to do. Um, and, and in many ways, like, to me, the most villainous thing he does isn't even his violence. It's his gentrification, mm-hmm. um, which is much a political objection to what he's doing. Um, but I can understand, like, and obviously the violence is horrific and all the things around that. But you can understand his point. And I think in so many ways, Jessica Jones being this very complicated character. Um, I mean, Purple Man obviously being very clearly just a a horrible, malicious, evil person. But even him, we get one episode that's entirely about understanding his perspective and how, you know, I never would have thought about it, but the idea of what would it be like that if you could never tell some, you could never ask anyone to do something and and have any expectation they can ever say no. You know, that you can never just casually say, I would like this because you just will have that power over someone. Yeah, it built him a completely broken social experience, and because of that, you know, it was almost it was almost predestined that he ends up in this this sort of narcissistic position 
with the way he approaches life because that's his experience right nice. it's so good it was such a good and, episode and having that having that richness of because then you have a character like because to me i'm not saying they're the same i think kingpin is a very morally gray villain um Purple Man is 100% not. I mean, he's clearly evil and awful and terrible, but they both feel real, you know, in the same way that Cottonmouth or Diamond, uh, Diamondback less. But like, you know, any of the other, Mariah Dillard, you know, Mariah Dillard compared to her mother, you know, mm -hmm. Mariah Dillard is an evil, awful character, but has so much things going for her that you, you almost kind of want to root for her in some ways. Same with Bushmaster. Mariah's mother is just flat out terrible, but is again, a, an understandable terrible. Like, I never felt like any of the main characters were just cardboard cutouts the way I have. You know, I love the the, the MCU movies, but there's an awful lot of mustache twirling that happens in those movies. And I don't think... And an awful with a lot of pageantry of with the Diamond, heroes, too, right? Like, Yeah. Like, with the possible exception of Diamondback, I don't think there really is a mustache, mustache twirler in all of the MCU on Netflix. And even Diamondback was it was just that his story was told very poorly, right? He had a yeah. personal angle uh with Luke Cage, which normally we would like, but it just it didn't play well because they didn't do they not gonna put yeah. too fine a point on it. They didn't do a good job of, of writing that one. Um No, but you're right, but it clearly that what he had a reason beyond mustache twirling, it just wasn't explained well. Right. It was like the thing is, all of these characters are people. Right, they are portrayed as actual people with like their own motives and their own rationales. That there's at least a logical train or a, or an emotional train or there's some way that gets you there. Right, there's some yeah. there's some story angle that gets you to be okay. That's why this person exists. And so because you can follow that story because again they can tell it for every one of their characters. They can tell you Kingpin's origin from all the way from his childhood all the way through, beat for beat. Along with showing you the origin of Matt Murdock, that's one of the reasons Daredevil Season 1 is so good, is you get the origin story behind both of those characters, right? Yeah. And what led them to where they are today, up to their showdown and beyond, right? It's mm, because every single character gets a gets a full sort of um, deep dive. Like, there's a, whole, there's a whole character episode about Karen Page in Daredevil Season 3 and her background that I did not see coming and loved. Yeah. Uh, because again, they're willing to, they, they have the ability to invest that time and they do it and it makes the characters more believable and it makes the story more compelling uh, yeah. because when, just... Go ahead. when the characters are struggling, we're struggling with them, right? We understand what they're going through, or at least from their perspective, we understand what they're going through. I, I, I think that's so true. And I think in some ways it, it did what I had loved most about the Christopher Nolan movies, which is. I think in some ways, like, more than anything, Netflix and Christopher Nolan are part of why I now love comic book stories so much. Because, I'll be honest, I I was not a huge fan of them for a long time. Like, yeah, I loved Superman when I was a very young kid, and then I liked the um, the Tim Burton Batman movies because I thought they were fun and a spectacle. But even as a teenager, I started to think those things were very silly. And, and throughout most of the, like, teenage and college years, I had very little interest in a lot of those kind of movies because they just seemed so... Because it's a comic book movie, it's going to take place in a comic book world, which is so different than our own, that I sort of felt like, well, okay, a Tim Burton world is a fun world to, to look at and to explore, so I'm happy to watch a Tim Burton world, but it's not our world, it has no relevance to our world, and so unless it's Tim Burton telling it, I probably don't want to see it. 
Um, certainly not when Joel Schumacher told it. Um, but what Christopher Nolan did, and then I think um, uh, uh, Netflix did, which I, I, I now acknowledge I've come to understand a lot of comic books were starting to do, was to say, instead of saying we're telling a story about comic book heroes who have comic book powers, and thus in a comic book world everything is different, we're going to really try and say, what if this was the real world? And what if people did have these powers? You know, Batman Begins and um, uh, um, uh, Dark Knight, to me, are not comic book movies as I ever understood them. They're in Batman Begins is a action movie, and um, Dark Knight is a crime drama, and a drama about three different people with three very different approaches to crime. Four, if you count Joker. Um, and and it just blew me away to see, oh, there can be real ethical questions here. There can be real things that the questions of Batman is, is wrestling with can be similar to the questions that we're wrestling with in our own world, even if we don't have the same power set that he does. Netflix did the exact same thing, you know, that I could watch Matt Murdock wrestle with a moral decision. I could watch Luke Cage try and decide what to do. And I could relate to those decisions in a way I never have, could have with, with any of the earlier um, – comic book stuff I saw. And I think that that to me just made it so appealing and, and something I really wanted to explore further. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because comic books themselves do the same thing that the Netflix MCU do in that they can tell long, complicated stories over time um, and, and build characters. But uh, there's that... <sighs> especially for for a long time there's that pulpiness that i think and i think that's what uh your principal objection to uh, a lot of these stories has been uh based yeah. on what you said is that the the you know they're fun but they never the, the you never feel like the characters are challenging themselves or are challenged by their world for what they're doing and netflix mcu just throws that in your face and says like matt murdoch is a vigilante full stop and he knows it and he's not too happy about it but he's still yeah. doing it. So why is he still doing it? And then we have three seasons of show about why he's still doing it. <laughs> and, and the fact that all four of the major MCU characters, the named characters, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, Danny Rand, and, and Matt Murdock, they're all wrestling with the same questions of, do I want to be a hero? Should I be a hero? What are the ethics of choosing to, 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 to use this power or not use this power? They're all wrestling with that same question. But they're also demonstrating that they're wrestling with it from some very different perspectives. I mean, one thing we talked about on an earlier show was that it never had to put a lampshade on it. But the Netflix MCU seemed very clearly to understand that the decision for a white man like Danny Rand or Matt Murdock to become a vigilante had to be very different than that for mm. Jessica Jones or Luke Cage. Or, or Luke know? Cage especially, right? Yes. In, yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, and it's funny. And it's here, I think, again, it's why I saw them. I don't know how intentional this was, but I saw them as almost a little bit of a critique to some of the MCU movies. Um, because, again, it was pushing that, you know, I, I think I've talked about how in Civil War, you know, th this podcast started because Paul, the original host, he and I were always arguing about Team, team Cap versus Team Tony. And the reason I am much more Team Tony at the end of the day is because when Cap stands up and says... You trust your own moral feelings and that if at the end of the day, if everyone else is telling you to move, you just say you move. And I, on some level, I get it and I can resonate with what he's saying. But I feel like of all the heroes who would react to that, you know, our four heroes from the MCU on Netflix would all look at him like, what are you crazy? 
because they all spend so much time questioning their own decisions and wondering, should I move or should someone else move? And, and, and each of them tends to be the most successful when they have others to be accountable to, as we just talked about with Daredevil, when they have other people and they can ask them, should I move or should everyone else move? Um, and, and so in that regard, I am just so much, I, I'm so indebted and I so love what Netflix did with these shows because of the way it, was, it, it could push that question of heroes should really wrestle with this. Heroes shouldn't have just 100% moral authority of I have the strong power and I know what's right, so I'm going to go do what's right. Yeah, and you are, yeah, I mean, like, I'd love to comment, but, like, you did such a good job <laughs> of saying everything I wanted to say that now I'm at a loss for words, an uncharacteristic, I would say, <laughs> loss for words, so well done. Um, but, well, thank you. Let, let's turn to the next point that I wanted to talk about, but I'll give you a chance to talk about, and hopefully you can take the words out of my mouth. Um, talk about what the show did about violence, uh, what these shows did with violence and its portrayal of it. <laughs> Okay, and it, especially this is true uh, when we when we examine Punisher, which is Punisher is kind of the fail case for your like you know our heroes are our heroes but just barely. Where Punisher is like not really our hero ever. I'm I'm never personally sold on Punisher being our hero. Uh, he lives in a world of of gray or black. Uh, it's funny. I can't say that I had intentionally left Punisher out when I was talking about our four heroes. I just fundamentally forgot. I I thought I, you did. I thought you were like intentionally like leaving that like laying that up for me for later so no I, I think it's because at the end of the day i still feel like punisher is best i think the best punisher we ever had was as a foil to matt murdoch yes and i i loved season one of punisher i had very mixed reactions in season two of punisher but i continue to think that the punisher is an amazingly well-written character i just think and i as i think we'll, we will get more into even more so than you were saying with matt murdoch Punisher is much more of a villain than the writers seem to think. But yeah. even so, sorry, jumping that in, go back to what you were right, saying. Right, right. So, so, I, but I can't right. talk, I cannot talk about violence in the Netflix MCU without mentioning Frank Castle. Absolutely. Right? He's the poster child for uh, how, especially how, how gritty and, and unpleasant violence can be. And for him, it's because it's gun violence, right? In a lot of ways. Yeah. And it show it does not. They they paint a very clear picture of exactly how ugly uh, gun violence is when it's used in in these contexts, right? And but even when we're we're looking at uh, Matt Murdock's, you know, one of his many famous hallway fight scenes, right? He it's never this sort of clean, clinical like Hong Kong action theater martial arts style fighting. Even though he does a lot of the same kinds of like moves that you'd see where he's doing like twisting spinning kicks and flipping about in the air and he does a lot of suicide kicks which is uh very cute and probably does a lot of damage to the stuntman's back but i'm sure that he's uh, <laughs> well taken care of um and he's basically a wwe superstar every single time he's going through there right he's like punishing his body just to hit the just to hurt the villains more or to hurt the the criminals more and but every single one of those scenes is just a tableau of ugly violence right uh we don't see the the only times we see fighting on screen where it isn't um interesting where it isn't like super ugly is luke cage because when luke cage uses violence it's very quick and clinical right he yeah. throws somebody and they're done they're they're mm -hmm. gone Maybe they're dead. We're hoping they're not dead, but maybe they're dead. Uh, he does throw some people through some walls. Uh, so, 
And because he's a very strong yeah. person, as it turns out. Uh, I, whereas, I think that's a good... Whereas, whereas Matt Murdock uh, has to hit people many, many times before they go down. And it's like they, they don't uh, they don't put a, a coat of, of sparkly paint on it. They show it exactly as it is. Yeah. Uh, he comes away with bruises and stuff from all of his from all of his activity, right? We see his face bloody constantly. Yeah, I think you said it so well there. And I, all I would add is I, I mentioned at the beginning that Logan is probably still my absolute favorite of any comic book property. It's in part because when Logan has to do violence for the most justified, righteous, good reasons, it is still like sickening to watch. It is hard to watch. I felt like the Netflix MCU was willing to do that in a way, you know, Captain America, when he kills people, it's either just precision or it's funny, you know, like Captain America can knock someone off a ship in the start, I think it was Civil War, and they'll bounce off the top of the ship and it, it, it's a laugh moment. In, in Netflix MCU, you're never going to get that. You're going to get like people die in gruesome, terrible ways and you have this moment of, you're just thug number four, and suddenly I feel so sorry for you for this terrible thing that just happened to you. Right. Um, you know, and I, I think that's so good. And in a lot I, of it is how it's shot, right? Yeah. Because you look at you look at the difference you can paint the same scene in Punisher and one of the Kingsman movies and get a completely different reaction, right? Yeah. And it's just it's it's how they choose to execute it. Uh one is played for, you know, ridiculous comedy. Right, it's it's all all about the spectacle, and the other one is showing you what happens when you shoot somebody with a gun at close range. Um, the only thing I would like to just put as a, as a note on that, as a button on that for our pending Punisher discussion, is we still haven't really gotten a good deep dive into the collateral damage that uh, bullet sorcerer, bullet sculptor <laughs> Frank Castle yeah. really should be getting. And, and we'll, we will definitely talk about that when we talk about Punisher because I, I think we both are – Punisher started to introduce that topic and then ran away from it, and I was so angry about that. Yeah. Oh, my um, God. But, but, but back to these other shows, I think the one thing I would also say is – and you, you touched on this, and it's funny. I hadn't really thought about it until we started this conversation. Another thing I loved about these shows was the lack of special effects mm-hmm. because – like, think about it. Like, what's the amazing thing about some of the Avenger movies? It's these huge, spectacle-inducing, millions and millions of dollars of special effects shots. What's the crazy thing about Daredevil? It's when a single person holds a single camera for a single shot as actors do incredible things. Like, it, it reminds me of something I've said often about how I, I think the alien first Alien movie is the best and probably my favorite horror movie. Because they didn't have a budget to show the monster, to show the alien every 10 seconds. So they had to rely on much more, you know, make it about the the suspense and the moments. And I feel like it's very easy for the MCU, for any comic book movies, to get so lost in the special effects that you don't tell a good story with real actors and dialogue. I think MCU movies have been getting much better about that recently. That's fantastic. But Netflix, I feel like, because of budget constraints, this may not have been a choice. But but what they wound up doing was saying we don't have special effects to carry the story, so we're really going to carry it with characters and story and dialogue, but also with doing incredible feats of cinematography without spending it more you know anywhere near what they would spend on them on a movie. Yeah, the number of wonders in Daredevil alone is staggering. 
where yeah. we have this continuous shot like what that's one of the reasons the hallway scenes got like so famous is that it's this one continuous shot all the way through the scene um it's just it's hard to do like somebody's if you have one accident you have to start the whole thing over again right it's yeah. like 10 minutes of nonsense violence and i i don't know if you've seen have you seen um the haunting of hill house i have not seen the haunting of hill house no very very good show i won't spoil anything but i will say um there is one there's one episode where something like 40 minutes of the episode is one shot and it's not fight scenes so it's nothing to do with the special effects that are happening but there's like you know there's special effects of like ghosts and stuff and um it is to this day probably the most technically proficient thing of television i've ever seen in my life and the writer the the director has said like he flat out names like yeah daredevil showed us we could do things like this mm-hmm. um you know and so that's it's another netflix show not mcu at all but to me that's one more sign of like what daredevil did what what these other shows did really had an effect on the, the whole tv universe and they they built it based on what audience prove audiences continue to prove they were willing to stomach from media that came before. So it's yeah. really really smart of them to just keep building on what fans proved they were willing to see, up to and including these more complex morally gray characters, right? Yeah. That that were you know struggling with their own sense of morality, their own sense of right and wrong, and really. What, what does somebody who chooses to enact their own form of justice in their city, what does that look like when they're like a person like you or me, when they're closer yeah. to a person like you or me? I mean, obviously Daredevil has some ridiculous preternatural sonar hearing BS, but like he's still a person uh, and he's in like has, has difficulty uh, trying to hold his lawyer life together. Yeah. I, and I will say, because um, I want to move us into a conversation about what we think is going to come next and what we hope is going to come next. But one other thing that I think we both have talked about that we like so much about the Netflix MCU is it was fairly pioneer in pushing the boundaries of who gets to be heroes on these major shows. Um, you know, Luke Cage came a couple of years before, or I think at least a year before Black Panther. And um, Jessica Jones certainly came before Captain Marvel and I think came before Wonder Woman. And you know, I think it's not fair to compare those two because what you can do with a doing it a movie has a much wider audience, and what you can do with a movie is so much different. But I do still think it's important to note that like the Netflix MCU was really committed to telling stories about characters who weren't white men in a way that I hadn't seen from Agents of Shield had some of that, but still had you know a white male character um, as as the, the the main sort of protagonist or at least the main director. Um, and so seeing seeing that kind of diversity really explored and not just like a, Oh, this, this hero happens to be black, but Luke Cage, let's 100% look at the black experience and what it would mean to be a hero. Let's look at what would it mean for Jessica Jones to be a woman in the scenario. Um, I, I, I continually think that that's a fantastic thing. The, the Netflix MCU did. Yeah, I agree. Uh, unfortunately, well, unfortunately, I mean, three of the, of the five quote heroes, I say quote heroes because Punisher, um, that we got were more or less just white men, but Agreed. it's still a better, uh, mix than we've gotten right in, in most of our other team up stories. Right. I'm thinking like you look at X-Men, right. Yeah. Um, you have storm and, uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I nope. You have Storm. Uh, 
sometimes Kitty Pride is 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 portrayed as a person of color, which is great. But uh, yeah, it's yeah. it's you know, it's a it's a lot better uh, when yeah. you're able to paint it more like the world is. And I will say because we shouldn't just keep praise on the MCU. In part, I think because it had established that that idea that it would be good for diversity. I still think that I am very angry at the MCU for for not only because the actor himself, Matt, uh, was it Finn Jones, is that the actor who plays? Um, like I think he's a good actor. I thought he was good on Game of Thrones. I think he is terrible. He's, he's better in Danny Rance in Iron Fist season two, but overall he's yeah. not a good actor. But even if he had been a fantastic actor, I continue to think casting a white man as the Iron Fist. It, you know, yes, I know that's the true to the comic books, but fuck that. You can make the change. Um, like, I, I do think I will still, like, I can't say the MCU is the most, you know, wonderful diversity thing ever. As you said, there's a number of what, uh, there's a majority of white male care, uh, heroes, but also just the Danny Rand especially. I, I still think that was a major fuck up on their part. But but holding that, I still can say I, I, I'm really glad that they were willing to push some of these directions that I don't think anybody else was at the time. I, I do not want to be this person, but I'm going to say this anyway. Uh, in their defense, oof, God, that <laughs> feels, that tastes really bad. Hold on, let me start over. In their defense, air quotes defense, um, they were sort of damned if they do, damned if they didn't on that one. Uh, although there was a very easy play they could have made. Right. The the damned if they do is if they actually made Danny Rand an Asian character. Right. They would have gotten outcry from the, uh, you know, f- f- from those people, you know, those people, right. it's those people and those people like some of them are, are completely reasonable. They would have just been upset that you changed the character for, you know, quote, yeah, no I, reason. I, I, I find it trouble to think you, that there's a reasonable reason to object to that. But I, I understand your point. Finish right. the point you're making. Uh, however, there are other Iron Fists than Danny Rand, and they could have just pulled one of them. Uh, it was so yeah. easy to do. Uh, just feel like, we're changing the story. It's going to be this character in this timeline. And I think, and again, not to get us too far in this debate, but I think, honestly, even then, you, you could have made Danny Rand an Asian-American character, who the whole experience was that he had been born and raised in New York City still, and he could be just as much a fish out of water in Kunlun. Um, because, especially because to me, like, you know, Luke Cage and Black Panther were both originally written 100% as black exploitation characters. And over time, those characters have become written by black authors and the direction of them fundamentally changed. And the movies and TV shows went to those those later directions, even to the point of, in Luke Cage, making fun of the original like sort of mm-hmm. black exploitation portrayal. You know, mm-hmm. Captain Marvel, same kind of thing. Like, oh, so many, excuse me, so many of these heroes. So I, I don't really buy... I, I think that the, sh- the reaction should have been you know, make Danny Rand an Asian character, and if anyone doesn't like it, go jump off a pier. Um, but <laughs> Paul and I did a whole topic on that right. when, I, when Iron Fist, the first one, came out, so we can go back and listen to that. Um, but but I do I do understand where you're coming from there. Um, I mean, don't don't get me wrong here, right? All I'm saying is that I know there is a perspective about you don't change the source material if you don't need to, right. um, and there would be an argument that that was not a necessary change and it like could just easily be painted as, Oh, well you, you put a, an Asian character into the role because you didn't want to step in this thing. Well, that's See, not a particularly good reason either. Right. Like and, you should put an Asian character. I, as I, I guess I would disagree with the premise there because I think the incredible racism of having a white man be the person who teaches everyone else martial arts and is the martial artist of the world and is especially the purveyor of Eastern philosophy 
to me, that is so racist and so problematic that that absolutely is a reason. Um, and you're right. Some people wouldn't think that's a reason, but those same people don't think it's a reason to have a woman as a Jedi. So I, I, I just, I have absolutely no sympathy for that argument. Fair enough. Um, but, but even so, I think that, that, that we can still say that, like, we're, however people feel about that particular one, you know, the things Marvel did, uh, MCU Marvel did with, with, with pushing um, Luke Cage and Jessica Jones, I think we can see really incredible. Um, where do you think things are going for the, the MCU? What, what um, you know, there's a lot of debates about this. I don't, not, not necessarily in terms of the celebrity gossip we can get into, but what do you want to see happen now that Disney has control of these characters again? Um, do you do you, do you, do, you, do you have any kind of hopes of what you'd like to see on the the Disney Channel, whatever is coming? Well, I would. So I'm uh, infatuated, I guess you could say, with many of the actors, um, yeah. and so I kind of want a continuation of these stories with these characters. I want to see I want to see a team up show with Luke Cage and Jessica Jones, um, and I want to see a team up show with. Um, with Colleen Wing and uh Wow it has been oh, way too Misty, long. Misty, Misty Knight. Knight. Yes, with yeah. Misty Knight. Thank you. Uh Ooh, I, I, I should have talked about like she is not a title character, but another phenomenal character we get in the in this universe. Right. Uh so the the latter being Daughters of his Dragon. The former not actually being heroes for hire, but like actual heroes for hire is uh luke cage and danny rand and we don't want that so (laughs) (laughs) jessica Jessica jones does appear in a lot of that story yeah in in some ways i think that would be my dream is you get daughters of the dragon you get heroes for hire where it's mostly jessica jones and luke cage but maybe danny rand is kind of hanging around some and then we finally just get murdoch you know you know matt foggy and and karen being able to be like do their thing um one one thing I think. Oh I'd man, do... I would just love a I would just love a superhero legal drama uh, where yeah. it's it's mostly like it's like Matlock but with Daredevil. Uh, I would love that show if we're just fantasy booking these things. Especially uh. because have you have you read uh, the, 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 the 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 Civil War comics and the comics that came out around them? I did not know. So one of the reasons that first made me fall in love with the Defenders is, and I and I wish they had pushed this story more is that in the larger MCU world in the comic books, when the Sokovia Accords take place, yes, you get comic books about how these are affecting Captain America and Thor and Iron Man. But then you get stories about how Joe Random Mutant is on trial for the Sokovia Accords and Matt Murdock Mm -hmm. is the lawyer defending him. And you get cases where a woman is afraid that her husband... uh, uh, One of my favorites, a a 14-year-old girl is afraid that she might be a superhero and has powers and trying to hide it. And her parents hire Jessica Jones as the PI to try to figure out what's going on. You know, like there were incredible stories of Matt Murdock and Jessica Jones doing PI and detective work on the sort of legal issues and, and, and detective issues that came up because of this larger Sokovia world stuff. Um, right. And I wished we got more of that. And yeah, I, I would love to see Matt Murdock lawyer, you know, dealing with all the, um, I recently watched Ant-Man, where a big part of it is that, you know, uh, Ant-Man is being legally punished for him having gone to Germany during Civil War. I would just love to watch Matt Murdock be, be the lawyer for that kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, Ant- Ant-Man is in Ant-Man and the Wasp? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, 
good movie. One of the only ones that had the uh, the Snapshot actual payoff in. So mm, yeah, even yeah. though in a pretty weak way, but that's that's yeah, not so, the story. But but anyway, um, so that's what I would like to happen. Uh, do you want to talk about what I think will happen? Yeah, go for it. I think the shows are dead. I think that if they do anything, it's going to be a complete uh, restart, refresh, uh, new actors, new story, uh, directly tying in. Because here's the thing. Um, They can do mutants now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is such a fundamental change. And they've they've been very careful in the movies to sort of play it open. Um, But the... I feel like they're going to think that the Marvel Netflix shows can't handle mutants in like injecting into their world because they've been largely like supernatural light. Right. Yeah. Um, and special effects light. And so I feel like they would want to start over and repaint the world. Um, I don't, I, I don't like it. I don't think that's the, the right decision. I think especially like these actors have proven that they're, We'll see how Jessica Jones three uh, turns out, but uh, so far, uh, most of them have proven that like they are phenomenal in these roles. And the, where we left like Luke Cage off, I want to see that payoff that we talked about. Um, yeah. But I think realistically, uh, nothing lasts forever, and uh, I think it is reasonable to think that uh, we're just going to get new stories, and maybe they'll be better. Um, but they won't be these stories. Yeah, I, I, I hope you're wrong, because I just feel like this world is so good. I'm afraid you may well be right, especially because I know there's like non-compete clauses and all sorts of crazy legal uh, commentary and stuff that I'm not gonna try and get into. But I know that that stuff is gonna make it much harder. I hope you're wrong. I, I think, I think you're right for a couple of reasons. One is because, um, just you know the the conflicts there. But also because, you know, we talked so much about Netflix being super dark and gritty. And and granted, there are Disney-owned properties that no one knows Disney owns that have done dark and gritty, no doubt. It is now so clearly clear to everyone that, you know, MCU is Disney that I have real trouble imagining they could do that. They could continue that dark, gritty world. Um, I'd love it, but I don't think so. And I do think there's some great story, other storytelling to be done. I hope, if anything else, if if, Net, if Disney decides not to do continuation of this version of the Defenders part of the MCU, I hope they just start something else. Because I think I would be open to totally new stories about totally new characters. I am not ready to watch a Luke Cage or a Matt Murdock or a Misty Knight, and certainly not a Kingpin, played by anyone but these actors. Um, they, they should just do an X-Men television show. Yeah. Um, that and I know there is. I think Legion is kind of doing that. It's one show actually I want right. to watch and maybe get us to talk about sometimes. I keep hearing it's very good. Um, but yeah, and that could be good. And there certainly are some really, um, you know, X Men doesn't have to be shiny happy. Look at the movie nope. Logan. You know, yep. it, you go to some really dark places. Um, well, in fact, if you look back at the uh, the the storyline they went with for the I want to say '90s cartoon. No, it must have been '80s cartoon. Um, it's about the the sentinels and the um the the basically the act that made being a mutant illegal where they were like rounded up in concentration camps and stuff like it went that dark right, right. they could make that show that's a I mean, good even, show 
Um, I like Days of Future Past a lot more than many other people do, and the storytelling, I granted, is, is kind of all over the place. But even there, I mean, that was a dark, dark movie mm-hmm. um, about what it's like to be hunted like that and prejudice and things like that. So, yeah, I, I think I'm not going to boycott anything Disney does. I think th- there could be some great TV shows. I just, if we can't continue this version of the MCU, I just hope, well, I, there's one other thing I would hope for. I'd hope that Disney just does something totally new. And I would hope that maybe there is some way to bring these characters just a little bit into the movies. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, how great would it be if there is a scene of, you know, a Spider-Man movie where, you know, Spider-Man gets arrested and Matt Murdock is his lawyer, you know, or Jessica Jones is uh, hired by, you know, someone to help try to figure and- out is Peter Parker. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be like a Jessica Jones movie, but just having Jessica Jones on screen for two minutes in an MCU movie just as a way of seeing like, yeah, that the MCU, the MCU continues to know that these characters exist and are alive in their world, even if they're not on Netflix. Yeah. In many ways, I feel like we've been sold a bill of goods on the MCU and never been delivered the product because that was something that was like, I was given to understand that would be happening all over. Like when Phil Coulson shows up alive in the first episode of agents of shield, I'm like, Oh, we're going to have crossovers all over the place. This is phenomenal. Nobody has done this on this scale yeah. before. And then the movies, largely state of the movies, and, and they'll talk about events in other properties, but they don't. there's no character overlap. And that's yeah. – it just, it just feels wrong, right? It feels like what we ought to be seeing is just like you would see in the comics. Like it should be the comics up on the screen. Uh, Tony Stark should show up at one point and make uh, – uh, I don't know. Danny Rand really upset because he's an even bigger jerk than Danny. Uh, or you oh, know, we, we... just the simple thing of yeah. Because there, I do agree with you. That was a major failing. I I blame that more in the movies, but I think the the shows as well. Like just the simple fact of you know, in the comic books, Tony Stark makes Misty Knight's bionic arm. Yeah. Every there's no reason why they, they could have just said you know oh yeah that scientist guy Tony Stark. He made the name. Instead, they had to make it Danny Rand. I just was that. Or like, and again, I haven't read these comic books myself. When people write in and tell me if we're wrong. But from everyone I've, I've read and from I've heard from folks, Spider-Man was in many ways more a defender than he was an Avenger. Mm-hmm. And he, he bounced back and forth. And he was kind of a bridge to that world. But Spider-Man is very much a New York City hero. And so, of course, he's plugged into the Defenders. And of course, he knows these people. And he's part of their world. And to just have like, there never be any connection between Spider-Man and any of the Defenders. Just, again, it felt like... Like, you're right. It, it was so, they, they sold us a bill of goods. And and maybe I maybe that is not a, a reason to be hopeful, but a reason to be kind of more okay with this than, I, than other people might think. Because I do feel like I love the Netflix MCU, and I think even though what I'm about to say is critical, I still wish we could continue, but it was starting to sort of collapse under its own weight. Like, it was getting to the point where, unless every show was a Defenders, it didn't really make sense because you now had all these characters interconnected and it was becoming harder and harder to justify not having the characters all be on, all be in each other's lives at the same time. Um, right. And at least if it's all under the Disney envelope, you can get that. And that could lead to some other, like interesting ethical questions like there's this whole scale argument we could have the sokovia accords are actually a great example of a uh regulation being implemented that doesn't scale well right yeah it's great for your tony starks and your thors 
or whatever but like when you get down to the spider-man or or daredevil or jessica jones level it's not really practical and we did get a little of that i mean in jessica jones season two when they they definitely talk about taking um jessica jones's mother to the raft which was yep. the thing you know and i think don't they specifically say that the problem is that she's in violation of the sokovia accords yeah yeah they um, do yeah. they do name that so at least we got a little bit of that but like but even there like you know the idea that Jessica wouldn't immediately call up, you know, I think mean, she calls up Foggy, so that's not a good good argument. But yeah, just that there's so many when Matt's looking to figure out a mystery that he wouldn't call Jessica Jones, you know, all these things. It just it was a flaw that was getting worse and worse as the shows went on. And and as much as I would like to have more shows, maybe it's better that we don't get to see that keep getting worse and worse. Right. Uh, alternately, maybe we'll just get the Defenders plus Spider Man. Uh, oh, I think you're right. So like, good. And the reason why I think it fixes the defenders, uh, because Spider-Man's the heart of that team and they didn't have a heart in, in defender season one. And that was a huge part of why it was such a problem. Like yeah. all of the, all of the supporting characters from the other shows were taking the place of what Peter Parker as a person accomplishes on that team. I, yeah. And I guess here maybe is the thing that you could do in comic books that you can't do in TV and movies is that, TV and movies do have genres that they're kind of locked into in terms of who the audience is. And I think hardcore fans are really happy to bounce around between different genres. I think, like, Spider-Man Homecoming, I think, is a fantastic movie. It is wildly different in feel than any of the Netflix MCU. And I don't know if you could have, I mean, having just said how much I want it, part of me thinks, I don't know, you have to have a really good writer be able to find a way to make Tom Holland still feel like Spider-Man and, you know, the other actors still feel like the MCU characters without having to feel like one of them had stepped into a different genre of show. Right. Because the Netflix shows are so much dark, like even just the lighting in which they're shot. It's like Peter Parker's uh, New York City is a completely different world than um, than the New York City of Matt Murdock. Uh, and there are different uh areas right but like yeah anyway uh now we're just talking uh now we are (laughs) just like strictly speculating on fantasy in the future but it's because it it, it does sort of tie into the purpose of the of the podcast in that the reason why we're invested is because this has been delivering such such quality material for driving discussions like we still have to talk about punisher we have another season of jessica jones that we'll probably end up getting into a discussion about and it's because these shows have done such a good job of creating these messy situations uh where the role of the hero is not clear it's not black and white uh, and it's it's not something where well okay clearly they need to be doing this and they're not because story reasons but but more, you know, the, the actions that our hero takes are possibly necessary, but kind of uncomfortable, mm-hmm. right? They've created these very tense, interesting situations. We don't want to lose that. Yeah. Uh, because, I mean, we could, like, be talking about uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp or maybe some of my new comics, but I think Star Trek versus Transformers, not so much with the ethical material to talk <laughs> about. Uh, yeah. And I, and I I would say, I hope that whatever happens with these individual characters, I hope that the MCU on Netflix has an ongoing legacy. You know, because I think it, 
And I, I'm already seeing that. I'm seeing on other shows like Runaways and Cloak and Dagger and Black Lightning and shows on you know Hulu or Netflix or the CW and even Agents of Shield. There are more stories being told from more diverse perspectives. There are more stories being told about more complex characters and more more stories that that really explore what are the negative consequences of using violence for what you think is a good purpose. And you know, however much we you know, I, I have no idea what, what goes on in, in Hollywood writing rooms, so I, I can't claim this is true, but I for me, the headcanon absolutely is that what, what Netflix showed you can do with the MCU shows, a lot of these other writers are now paying attention to and producers are paying attention to, and that in the same way that Christopher Nolan movies changed how we looked at superhero movies, I, I think that the Netflix MCU movie shows have done the same. And I think it's that's a good place to end it. We've talked for quite some time. I don't have much more to add on this other than to say, again, uh, really thankful for the content. It wasn't always perfect, but it was something that uh, I appreciated. And I watched every episode, even Iron Fist Season 1, where I was really frustrated with it because of things like uh, what Daredevil had done had you know bought my interest. Right. Um, but uh, was there anything else that you want to add before we kind of wrap up? I think that's all. I think we've, um, I mean, there's 8 million other things we could talk about. And I think um, we'll probably keep going. I imagine that we are still going to keep making references to the Netflix MCU universe in a lot of our episodes going forward. Um, but I think we, we've covered all the things I really wanted to hit on. What about you? Nope. Uh, other than to say that, yeah, uh, same thing. We're basically going to bring up Kingpin at every opportunity and that's just because it's an it's it's an easy trick uh it's like i could say the word kingpin you know exactly what i'm getting at immediately because of the character that was painted in these shows exactly exactly well jacob thank you so much this has been a great episode um to you guys what what's your take on this there's a lot of questions we've gotten into what what do you see as the the legacy of the netflix marvel universe um what have been some of your favorite stories or what do you think they they did well or what do you think they didn't do well um let us know. Let us know what you think about Daredevil Season 3 and Iron Fist 2 that we kind of brushed over, but would love to get into more conversations about. Um, the best ways to find us are we have a, a group on Facebook called Superhero Ethics. We also have a page. Facebook is kind of silly about these things. Um, you have to ask permission to join the Facebook group. There's just no other way we can set it, at least no way that i found. If you can tell me how, please let me know. But um, that's where we're doing some great discussions. There have been great, great listener comments and feedback. Uh, we'd love to keep talking about these things. Let us know what you think. You can tweet at us, uh, Superhero Ethics, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Superhero Ethics on Twitter. Um, uh, you can also email us at superheroethics at gmail.com. Um, you can also, if you want to just talk to just one of us, so that we'll probably <laughs> share it back and forth, but but comment on a specific thing I or Jacob said. We each have our own um, uh, Twitter as well. I am Caped Ethicist, uh, and Jacob, you are um, Bots Are People Too, correct? Correct, uh, where the R is the letter R because ARB wouldn't fit. Yeah, and, and I will, we will have links to both of those in the show notes so you can find us easily. Um, also in the show notes, we now have a couple of ways you can support the podcast. Um, we have a Patreon uh, that's going. We have a couple of people already who are making donations. We are so grateful for that. Um, if you're interested, all the information is going to be on the Patreon page, Superhero Ethics. You can also find it through our uh, the show notes on this episode. Um at, at whatever you want to donate at, there's some great rewards. There's some thank yous we can do. You can even get to um, get some uh, superhero ethics merchandise like um, T-shirts or um, mouse pads or things like that. And it, or if you just want to buy those things straight out, we have a a, a store now on T Public. Um, 
which is a, a great way to find those things. And again, the links will be in the show notes. Um, so a big thank you to all of you guys for listening. Um, a big thank you to Jack Heese, who has been uh, the guy who wrote the music that you heard for our intro. He's going to write. The, he also wrote the music for our outro that you hear in a few seconds. Um, thank you to everyone, and uh, keep tuning in. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.